Flabberton. Welcome to Conversing. such a joy today to welcome Dr. Luann Pinnell as our guest on Conversing. Dr. Pinnell has been for 18 years the head of police training and education for the Los Angeles Police Department. What an extraordinarily challenging job and she's played a really pivotal role in the redesign and development and oversight of LAPD's training curriculum from basic academy training all the way to advanced levels of training. This puts her in one of the most complicated contexts imaginable to try to negotiate what good training requires, what good service by the officers themselves requires, and what training and advanced training requires, especially at a time when we know that so much contention exists, as well as so much necessary benefit exists between the role of police officers today and the wider surrounding cultures and communities. She has been trained in her background as a psychologist. She's led in ways not only inside the LAPD, but in many national organizations as well. She has degrees from Fuller Theological Seminary, and she is currently the chief executive officer of Exceptional Edge Consulting, which is police training and education that extends around the nation. Welcome, Luann. It's so great to have you. Thank you so much. It is a pleasure and an honor to be here as well. Tell us, as you give us a little bit of your background, how it is that you got into this particular kind of work, because not everyone would stumble into such a thing. It happened, I'm sure, in a process. So share with us about how a person would even end up being the head of police training. Uh, Thank you. Well, you know, I started working as a psychologist in Pasadena with community mental health and high-risk children and families and the just constant need of, of our communities in, in crisis. And the position opened up as a police psychologist. So I applied for that and started with the behavioral sciences unit. And so I walked into LAPD during a very difficult time. Their consent decree had started. And, you know, the images that we have of law enforcement and policing, I, I walked into law enforcement and, and really wondered what I would experience and see. And in that role, I saw officers after officer-involved shootings or particularly traumatic events, you know, children who had been killed in a car accident or, or just various different things that law enforcement is exposed to on a daily basis. Certainly opened my eyes to the full scope of what is happening in our communities and then how do we even respond with the systems that we have. In 2005, you know, one of the things I had done as a police psychologist was to do a lot of training. I felt like it was a way of bridging the gap between law enforcement and mental health. I came in with my eager ideas of how I could help and, you know, noticed that there was definitely a hesitancy to engage in discussions on mental health, particularly at that time. And I used training as a vehicle to talk with people And just here's some tools from psychology that could help you when you do an interview with a child with attention deficit, when you 
are handling a grieving parent or, or something like that. So just continually trying to give tools away. And I think in, in that effort, when the position came open to become the director of police training, I was invited to apply for it. It's a huge job. Like it, training in, in law enforcement is ongoing. And it, particularly at the time, we were still in the middle of the consent decree. So that is the environment that I walked into. Why don't you define the consent decree just so that everyone hearing this understands what you're referring to? So uh, at different points, departments can be assessed and by the federal government and or the state, actually, and put into a consent decree, which says that, you know, you have to meet numerous requirements to operate on your own independent of the consent decree. So usually there's a consent decree monitor. There's usually many policy revisions and also training that accompanies that. And so we were in a consent decree LAPD for 10 years. There are several agencies currently across the country who are in consent decrees right now or just starting them. Which then adds a tremendous amount of pressure as being carefully being observed from the outside, monitored in a whole variety of different ways, I'm sure. What was it that yes. led LAPD, just to remind people, what was it that led to that? Unfortunately, we had the Rampart scandal and in Rampart Division, Rafael Perez, and there were several others that were involved in discriminatory practices and criminal activity. And that came to surface and it, it started a, a consent decree and a evaluation of the LAPD at a kind of from top to bottom. So as you stepped into this role at such a critical moment, how ready was LAPD for the kind of formational work that you were interested in doing? I mean, I can imagine in a certain way, maybe it made some people hungry for it, but it might've really offended and been a problem for many others who wanted to repel the whole effort. Well, you know, uh, when Chief Bratton came to LAPD, he really set a tone that we are going to work through this consent decree. I do think when we first started it, it was different and awkward and challenging. Over a couple of years, Chief Bratton was, we are going to get through this and just set that tone and mandate. And so I, I think it made a organizational shift. Yes. So by the time I became the director of police training, that was the focus. We are right. going to do right. this. And so my goal has always been to meet and exceed the standard. Whatever is set out for us by the consent decree or state training, I feel like we, we want to meet that expectation, but we also want to go farther. We want to develop the next generation of officers. Right, right. So as you start doing this work and you're beginning to frame up more clearly a, a, a fuller, more complicated picture of what being on the police force is really like day in and day out. Just give us some kind of sense of how that was evolving. How do you move from not being in that position to then really being completely immersed in that reality? You know, it, it's interesting because it is you know, often in the news in every part. It, it It's not just a nine to five job that you can walk away from. You know, first of all, our officers are there 24 hours and in my role as a police psychologist, you would have an on-call rotation to respond to any emergency across the city for a crisis negotiation or for an officer who's in distress or a civilian member of the department who's in distress. And so, so that part of having boundaries of your work life and your personal mm -hmm. life 
is is difficult. Right. And, and you see that there are different times when, you know, particularly during the pandemic and also during the protests of 2020, there weren't days off. And and it's it really is a, a consuming kind of effort, both for the officers who are working out there, but also the civilians who are supporting them going out. Yes, um, yes. It, 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 I don't know how to exactly describe it, but it is all, all in. You feel the weight of the responsibility of all these communities that depend on you. Take us inside the police experience in 2020. Imagine if you would, perhaps one person, you don't of course have to name them. Take us to one person and, and their experience of the trauma and challenges that were upon them in 2020 in light of all the racial activism and demonstrations that were going on? Well, I don't think we can quite have this discussion without going back a little bit earlier because, okay. you know, the pandemic started. Right, sure. And and as you recall, it's, just, it's a weird time to reflect on because we were all afraid. Mm -hmm. We didn't know what was happening. Yes. And law enforcement kept going to work. Right. And so during that, era, you know, many of our officers who were assigned to training, well, we weren't doing training during COVID because, mm -hmm. you know, we're trying to keep distances from ourselves. And our officers were assigned, many of them who weren't on patrol were assigned to uh, protecting homeless shelters. And so homeless shelters were being set up in, in all kinds of community centers and, and places. And we're trying to handle this horrible, unknown pandemic. And officers were really afraid. Not only are they, you know, they're trying to keep their responsibilities, but also worried about going home. You know, they were going home at night and, and like many healthcare workers, you know, changing in their garage and showering before they had any contact with their families and trying to, you know, keep the spread. And one officer had talked to me about how a couple of weeks before the protest, they were in downtown LA and about eight o'clock at night, everyone came out on their balconies and cheered for first responders, law enforcement, healthcare workers, and everybody came outside. And he said, you know, it was just euphoric at this feeling yes. of, I've been working in this job for 20 years and never quite felt that recognition. And I'm a part of this big community effort, yes, bigger than me, right? And now, and, and I get to be a part of this. And within two weeks, they're on the front lines and in protests every day. And those days are not eight-hour days. They're 12, 14, sometimes 16-hour days. And our officers are just fatigued. And that was the thing that I, I could just see so much. Many of them slept in their cars at the academy because there's no point in driving home in Los Angeles. Well, there was no traffic back then. But, <laughs> you know, they would sleep in their cars at the academy for four hours and get up and, uh, you know, be at roll call on time, ready to go. This specific officer who was telling me this story about, you know, the the cheering for law enforcement. And then within two weeks, he said, you know, he had young people, people he'd never met. And and this is the kind of person who is going to talk to you if he's on the front line and he's he's going to talk to people because he really does feel that if we just talk to each other and understand each other, we can work through this. And, and somebody was just screaming in his face and saying, you know, your DNA should be wiped off the planet, you know, and you're, and he, 
you know, how do you make sense for that? And, and he did, of course, I, I don't want to repeat all the things that were spoken to officers, but if you think about how many of us could stand in front of insults for 12 hours a day for days on end. And, and what was so difficult for many of our officers was that we had gone through the consent decree. We have really worked on all these different constitutional policing and relationship-based policing, and we've improved our training and done these different things to really strive to be better. And it felt like in a moment that was taken away. It's like the ultimate stress test right in the face of it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we had a few, we graduate a class of recruits every month. And so we had brand new recruits who just got out of the academy standing on the front lines and thousands and thousands of people walking through. And you try to make sure that the messaging is clear. You try to make sure that you're relieving people who are getting to their limit. But after, you know, 20 days, who, who isn't at their limit? You know, who, who isn't fatigued? And recovery after that is, is a long road. And I think from time to time, I still hear people reference it with, with, a, with an enormous kind of pain. Right. When, when a, one officer said, you know, I don't think we've healed from the scars of 2020. And I think that's true of our communities and of our law enforcement community. I, I think there is a really big effort right now to make sure that we are sharing with the community and saying we are the community. Law enforcement is part of the community. Right. Um, you know, we just have to cons consistently speak to that. Right. What would you say would be a way of describing the psychological profile of the, the day in and day out life of being a member of the LAPD as a cop on the front line? Just ordinary days, super traumatic days, whatever it may be. How would you describe what people are carrying in their body and mind as a result of the experience of being in the position of being a law enforcement officer? Wow. That's a, that's a question. One of the things I would highlight, and, and I really have loved reinforce, trying to reinforce in our training, is resiliency. And one of the things that we know about the research on resiliency is that if you have a sense of purpose, you can endure a lot of difficult things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we have certainly been persevering through a lot of difficult situations, but kind of coming back to the basics of, of being purposeful about what it is that we're doing on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think one of the things I would often share with community members was, I wish you could meet some of these officers and actually spend time with them. Because I think there is a gap between our image of what we've either seen on TV or in a you know, a body video to really knowing some of these individuals and the price that they have paid for doing this job. Mm -hmm. I most often hear from officers that just a thank you, you know, keeps them going. You know, they can, in, you know, have a lot of very difficult situations, but then they'll get that one thank you from a community member. And again, it kind of resets 
their purpose, you know? Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, mm-hmm. You're welcome. You know, of course, I'm going to mm-hmm. do this for you. It's just really hard to to give a profile of that, partly because there's a lot of diversity in LAPD. I'm sure there is, yes, absolutely. You know? yeah. um, and I love that about LAPD. We are not, you know, the LAPD of 1975, where it was pretty much all men and predominantly white. And we have a very ver- diverse department r- right now. And I think that is one of our strengths. It's it's a wonderful part about Los Angeles, right? That, And I, I think that the LAPD reflects Los Angeles is really important. But people come into the department expecting diversity. People yeah. come into the department expecting yes. that, you know, a continuation of some of the diversity that they've experienced in the city. Sure. So I think that has built us and made us stronger. And it does change, I'm sure, as a result, the the psychological profile and the way that people are equipped by their own life experience, as well as by their sense of mission, to be able to stand into the places that they stand in. I've had the privilege of teaching in the academy on the third day of the academy, a class that was called Transition from Civilian to Sworn. And we were trying to pay more attention on what are these transitions like, especially significant life transitions. And anything challenging, hard, worth doing is going to change us. But we start with a conversation on how. How is that going to change us? And how do we be responsible for the change that is happening in us because of uh, what we're exposed to and the places that we are? How do we keep responsibility over the care and character of our hearts? And right. in our mindset. And it's been such a privilege to see these young people coming into law enforcement. Uh, again, it's a snapshot that I wish I could share with America because there is a lot of hope and opportunity there. And people want to make a difference and be a part of something bigger than themselves. And I certainly applaud young people who are willing to step into a place of danger for others. One of the things that I think many people outside law enforcement wonder about is what kind of training is really being given and increasingly given about de-escalation of violence rather than the what often at least can appear to be the escalation of violence by some police. Now, let me just say as a parenthesis that all of these generalizations that we're talking about are, of course, unsustainable because it, it's always about the infinite variety of each person at any given particular moment and all of that. Sure. So I'm not I'm not suggesting there's a standard, you know, brand of avoiding escalation. But I think many wonder at times why why the use of gun violence, in particular by police, seems to not reflect a de-escalating motive or interest, but instead an escalating uh, pattern of behavior. But how, how do you see that? What kind of training is going on for de-escalation? How do outside citizens understand that? Well, I do think outside citizens should, should know that particularly since 2014, 2015, the discussion of de-escalation is in every department. I don't know where you'd have to go and not be a part of that discussion. The state of California and and POST, which is Peace Officer Standards in Training, has set some new curriculum, and that has been for several years now. And so that discussion on de-escalation is a constant part of training. The the part I appreciate you bringing in is there's so many variable factors that 
you know, one thing I'd, I'd love to share with people is that when we're looking at body video from a comfortable place in our home or, yes. you know, we're safe. And so we're just seeing through one little, some people I've, I've heard them term it. It's like watching baseball through a straw. You know, you see a little piece of it, but that officer who's there, their head is looking because there's traffic behind them. There's noises over here. There's somebody shouting. There's somebody else videotaping you. You are processing so much information. So to train to that environment, when you're learning a new skill, you can't teach somebody a new skill and, and put them in that environment and expect that they're going to be uh, exceptional at it. So within the academy, we try to start with smaller scenarios and build it. But as you can imagine, there is a difference in your brain when you know that that environment is safe and secure, that you know this isn't going to go on for three hours. You know it's going to have an endpoint because the next guy behind you has to get through this scenario too. So there's some safety that when you get out in the real world and all of these things are happening at once and you're processing what's right in front of you, there is, you know, there are human factors where you, you get tunnel vision and you get focused in on this one thing and you might not see options that others can see. Or, you know, again, sometimes where the body video is pointing, you don't know that that's what the officer saw. The officer could have been looking in a different direction because they heard a noise and the video is picking up something else. And it feels so obvious to us. Why didn't they see that or do that or respond in that way? But that that's kind of the dynamic of some of these very fluid situations. But what I would say for our department and many departments, we're training in de-escalation. We're debriefing about it. We are talking about it. Some of the efforts now too on employee officer wellness has focused on uh, self-regulation and calm. And how, how do you have calm in chaos, chaos really? And uh, again, it's a practice skill. You don't just walk into it and go, yeah, I feel really comfortable with, you know, we have 100 officers and 200,000 people in a protest. You know, right. Well, that's a lot. <laughs> but, oh, but that does happen, you know, where officers are extremely outnumbered. And how do you continue to to facilitate, you know, rights to protest, but keep everybody safe at the same time. Again, sometimes the weight of those decisions on the shoulders of 20-somethings, right? It's, it's, it's a lot to put on them. And so certainly training through the organization, you know, for LAPD, because of our size, it's, it's a year and a half to train the whole department. So you wow. could train officers on, on, one part and yes. you're not going to get through the whole department for a year and a half. Right. And that's with a consistent training effort with not being interrupted by other events. So it is just a, a constant challenge. I'm not sure if I answered your question. Well, I guess the thing that I find curious is that fear is a natural instinct and police are of course entitled to their own fear. And it's imperative that we have fear for all of the good reasons. But we also know that fear can also become something that chemically and otherwise derails us from being able sure. to actually perceive. So I'm wondering, as you work on the training of de-escalation, what are you actually working on? What, what are you trying to help people develop in their capacity to de-escalate? Well, I think law enforcement thinks of de-escalation much more 
broadly than probably somebody just hearing de-escalation. You know, I think the problem with de-escalation is I think of an escalator. You know, you escalate up and you escalate down as if things only had two directions to go. Yes. You can either make it go up or down. Quite often when officers are involved, like I said, there's people on the sidelines. There's there doesn't mean there's just one person you're dealing with. Often there's multiple people that you're dealing with at the same time in a conflict. You know, we're only called into conflicts. So that escalator should actually have like about four different offerings that go different directions. Being fully aware all the time of how you impact somebody else, you know, is, is difficult at the best of times. So the, the discussion around de-escalation isn't just using a calm voice, although that could be part of it. You know, all the skills that we use in crisis negotiation are, are emphasized. How can we use our communication skills? But law enforcement is also going to look at de-escalation at sometimes as we need to step back and have a perimeter and give this person more space. Yes. We have to take time as a factor. Can we create more time for this situation to calm down? But Again, in some situations, you might have to use time as a factor and increase your responsiveness. Because as I was mentioning before, if there's somebody wandering into traffic and there's other potential dangers that could happen, so you might need to speed things up and get that person either into custody quicker. And so again, that might seem, but but that can de-escalate something from getting into a bigger uh conflict or or a situation that causes danger to others. Yes. Um, so we, we teach, so we have a patrol acronym because we always have acronyms and, sure. and you want to remember things. So, you know, what's the planning going into a situation? Again, sometimes what we don't see on a, a body video is the, what were the contents of the call? There are so many times and officers will talk about it openly that, you know, you get called to one situation and it's something completely different once you get there. So you're right. planning for something on the way you're talking to your partner, you're maybe talking to the dispatch, calling for backup based on what you thought you were going to have. And it's something completely different once you get there. So then the next part of patrol is, is assessment. You got to assess what do you really have, talk to the other involved parties, anyone who can help you. Then time is a factor. Then we have redeployment or containment of the situation. How can we think differently, you know, about this engagement? Other O is for other resources and L is for lines of communication. So constantly thinking of lines of communication. Who do I, not just with the person directly in front of you, but what are my other officers who are arriving on scene? What do they need to know? What does the dispatch need to know? You know, do I call for an airship to help me out? So trying to really emphasize for officers that, they can feel very, very alone. And some departments only have one person cars. So they do feel alone and like they have to handle this whole situation. So how can we help them know that in the prog- process of having a peaceful outcome that they have other resources to rely on if, if, if we can get them? I'm Mark Laberton. You're listening to Conversing. So that's a very, very helpful picture of of just some aspects of the complexity of those moments that we're describing. So it makes me wonder then, 
in the selection and screening of potential candidates to become police. How do you determine personality traits that could be problematic as a police officer? So I'm just thinking of of the sense that so many people have, particularly in communities of color, that there is such a, a, a weighted bias toward the power of the police over and against the community. That's how it's often experienced. And, and therefore you're really relying on the police officer to be in a way, the person that controls their own power and seeks to honor the appropriate level of power of the person that is in front of them, whether it's just conversational power or whether it's something else. So I guess I'm wondering how, how do you screen for personality traits and other things that could really end up becoming a problem once you, a person is armed on the street and in blue? How does that actually So I have happen? to be careful because I am not a part of the, and haven't been about the psychological end of the city of Los Angeles. They have a whole medical team that does the psychological profile. I will say most agencies, I, I don't even know of one that doesn't have various psychological tests that they have to take. They have to pass through. Our department has also requires a polygraph and uh, a very extensive. What What is sometimes frustrating for people is getting people into the academy, but the other importance of a thorough background check. You know, we are all our best versions of ourselves in an interview, sure. um, but we we have to do the due diligence of talking to prior um, relationships or employers. And so that, that can take a while. One of the things I often say to my instructors at the Academy, and, and I have to apologize. I, I re just retired in May. So I still say a lot of we and my, um, but uh, just recognize I, I'm not working there right now, but we understand. One of the things I would say to many of our instructors is people show who they are every day and we have to let them show us. And so we redesigned our academy completely in 2006 and seven when I, when I just started as, a, as the director. And we kind of pulled things from the, the floor up to say, you know, what are we doing? Why at every situation in this class, what are we doing? Why, what's the purpose? How does it flow? Yes. But one of the things that we really shifted to is more adult learning and engagement so that we are having conversations in the classroom. I don't want to see just rote answers and rote learning um, because you can kind of hide behind that. Sure. You know, you can say the right thing, but not have the right character behind it. Right. And when we let people show us who they are, those kinds of things come to the surface. And, and we've had a real commitment to emphasizing mission, vision, values throughout the academy and much of our training, the reverence for human life. Again, that piece of one of our, one of our factors for health and resilience is keeping our focus and purpose ahead of us. And I think the challenges we've had with some of our biggest scandals have been when people lost that purpose, when they lost that focus. And so I would rather have somebody not make it through the academy. That's, you know, that's early on in their career. And, mm -hmm. but if, if that character is not standing up and, and certainly we have uh, gotten rid of people in the academy due to integrity issues. Because you can, you know, and if we're already seeing it there, what happens when you graduate and get a badge and a gun? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we we can't afford that kind of mistake. 
Glenn, everyone was affected deeply by what went on with George Floyd and the aftermath of that, both the event itself and all of its significance and the, the trial, the convictions and the national conversation and activity that went on as, around that season. I'm curious when something as traumatic as that happens in the nation, and then you're in a completely different part of the country, you're in a completely different police department, you're in a completely different setting in a way. And yet the, you know, a lot of the elements still could exist in any, any location, not just in Minneapolis. So I'm just curious, how do, how do police officers process something like George Floyd? How does that happen? And, and then when it unfolds and when the convictions eventually occur, which I certainly would wholly support, how do they also respond to that? So again, it's kind of a collective day, but just in, in, in a large part, I do think the first year afterward, people just felt raw and partly as well, you know, many departments came out and con condemned what happened. Our, our police union came out and said, no, this is not policing. This is not us. We, we don't, you know, and we hadn't even as a tactic allowed a, a chokehold in our department since like back in the eighties, something like that. So people on our department now don't even have a history of being allowed to use that tactic. But even when those things were all said and done, there were still riots in our city, you know, and uh, sure. it, it's very hard not to take that personally. So coming through that, you know, it's interesting. I had the opportunity to put together a, a focus group and kind of a mini training on procedural justice from the inside out. So procedural justice for those of you who might not have heard the term before has to do with four key tenets, voice, neutrality, respect, and trustworthiness. And to me, procedural justice is the antidote to bias. Because mm -hmm. when I give somebody a voice, when I treat them with respect, when I make that the tenant of, of how I operate, we can, we're, we're never going to get rid of everyone's implicit bias. We don't even know what they are because by definition, they're unconscious. But when we use procedural justice measures and we, we make an effort to stay curious about whoever we're dealing with and ask that extra question, to give them a voice, to build trustworthiness. So we emphasize that a lot in our training, especially as we're dealing with the community. But the internal procedural justice is what happens within the department. Do I, you know, does an officer feel like I get a voice? Am I going to get respect? Am I you know, who's building trust in me. And so that fabric of that discussion felt really torn at, at that point. We did a program, again, procedural justice from the inside out and, and did more of a focus group talking about the key issues. You know, some of the things that came out of that, and, and I actually wrote it down before this interview, 68% of those involved in that had lost friends during just the discussion afterward of George Floyd in the three to four months after that. 64% of them said they had to defend their career to choice. Again, like you're saying, this didn't happen in my city. It's not, I've been doing this job for, you know, how many years? 
But one of the things that was most difficult for the officers is that they said their immediate family suffered because of their choice to become an officer. 79% said they watched their family members suffer and they saw their children get unfriended by friends because their parent was in law enforcement and saw that unfold and the pain that that caused them seeing how their families suffered. I think they feel a little bit, not to speak too much for somebody else, but you know they took on a profession and, and feel like they've made the, a good choice for them, but not expecting that kind of impact, you know, all the right. way down to their right. children. Daddy, why are you a police officer when they're all bad? You know, the, the different messages that come to them. I, I do think we're still trying to very much repair where we were. And, and many of the officers would also say there was a very big disconnect between what the media was presenting and what they were hearing from community members that they had been dealing with every day. Yes. So yes. community members that they knew or, or had come across would be appreciative of their efforts, but that's not shared on national television. And so right. it just felt like this, I'm living in this kind of upside down world where this part is happening. I, I do think some of the civility around how we talk to each other has decreased over the last few years. And I, I think just there is a lot of violence in our society, in our language, in our movies, in the things we watch and do, in, in, our, in music. And so it exists in our society, you know, and yet none of us want to be victims of violence. But, it, it, you know, I, I do think, again, returning to a place where we care for each other in our communications, we don't always have to agree but do we listen to each other? Do we hear each other out? Getting back to the place where we do that, I think is going to be important for us moving forward. I've presided at a number of funerals of police officers killed in the line of duty. And as you know, the practice of having virtually everyone, it seems, on that particular force show up on the occasion of it and the honoring of each other the sense of intense, intense community, loyalty, affection, respect, sacrifice of a person's life in this, in the line of duty has just been remarkable to be that close to and to feel surrounded in, and because of my role being really in the middle of, of watching and feeling what's going on in the room during that time. And I have to say, it's given me a very different understanding and, and, sort of an intuitive sense of what that community that you're describing means and how it really is such an essential ingredient in doing this work as a together exercise rather than an individual. So in this, in these occasions, of course, it's about the passing of an individual, but the honoring that's being done is the honoring of that individual in the context of this bigger community, which has to stand together in the face of of all that police are expected to handle. I know that some of the people who are listening to this are people who who just have enormous anger and frustration and disappointment with, with police who feel like their lives, their social locations has just have just put them in places where they feel victimized by being, not just by doing. And I guess 
in, in that alignment of standing with the police and them and, and supporting the legitimacy and, and importance, the, the extreme importance of police and the kind of good training that you're trying to bring about and the culture shaping that you're describing, all those things sound you know, very promising and extremely important to be being done. And yet I can certainly say that, that there are people listening and certainly plenty of friends of mine whose social location puts them in a context where they feel as though they're, they're being preyed upon. And I guess I'd like to know what, what would you want to say to those friends? I, I pause because it's, it's a very heavy question and a serious one. And I grieve with those losses and don't want to ever represent a, a Pollyanna answer or something. Right. The, the truth is, and I think you referenced it earlier, our lives and our world is messy, but I don't see how we do this without doing it together. Yes. And, you know, there, there's a whole effort right now, I would say, in relationship-based policing. How do we get back to knowing each other? And that is really risky, right? Right. You have to be able to kind of put on the back shelf and just even walk into the room sometimes. And I, I've seen so many times where we brought community members into LAPD training and showed them both how we train, the ways that we talk about reverence for human life. It's not what they imagined. And I had somebody who was on an advisory committee for me. And she was an African-American academic professor at an esteemed university. I'll just put it that way. And I, she had worked with me for years and I had shared with her and I, I have a committee that I work with to show them our training materials and, and you know, help me put things in the, in the right terminology. Am I using the current and most recent research and, and you know, utilizing these other professionals? And she had worked alongside of me for a while. And I asked her to go to one of our trainings. We created a course called Police Sciences and Leadership, where we bring back officers 11 months after they've graduated from the academy. And so it's before they pass probation. And we have deep conversations about how they are upholding an image of law enforcement in the community, whether they like it or not. They are leaders. You might be the youngest person in the department, but you are a leader already in law enforcement and in your communities. And how do we continue to serve? And she went to this training. And after she got through with it, she said, you know, what I realize is my images of LAPD have stayed true. And even though I've been working alongside of you, it wasn't until I went to the training that I realized I still have an image of LAPD from the 1992 riots mm. from Rodney King. And you have changed, but I haven't. And I don't know how to make that opportunity available to everybody. <laughs> um, right. But I would say that the law enforcement community is your community. And they suffer with you. The discrepancies that are seen there, there are a lot of efforts to trying to, to bring things together. Right now, though, in law enforcement, it's probably well known, there are fewer officers coming into academies. Mm -hmm. There are fewer officers on the job. So, you know, a department that had 800 people now has 530. 
So how do you get the same job done with fewer officers and build relationships? You've, you have this persistent feeling of time yes. as yes. a crunch. And, and I don't have time because relationships take time. They take listening. They take care and concern. At the, at the same time, I think there's great opportunity right now because it can't just be a law enforcement solution. And I think law enforcement is more open to that discussion than ever, where, yes, there should be more mental health facilities. I mean, law enforcement has been stepping in where there is a breakdown in society and has been for years. Our mental health facilities are poor across the country. Yes. And, and different opportunities are closed at five o'clock. And the only people doing business after six is is law enforcement, but that can't be the solution. And I think there's more of an openness to saying, okay, but what can we do? What, what is a different option? And so the, the reallocation of services, it, there was a big effort about defund the police, but in many ways that didn't really manifest because, <laughs> you know, three years later, where are the services that were supposed to step in so that we could refer somebody to a different call? You know, right. mental so health services you're thinking of specifically. Particularly mental health yeah. services, but yeah. substance abuse, addiction, sure. you yeah. know, domestic violence. How, where are the places that the officers have a different alternative or mm -hmm. that we don't even need to call an officer? Right. But that would require also positions for dispatchers who yes. who could be trained and how to divert those calls. Like there's many systems that have to yes. happen. And in a large city, they just move so slowly. Yes. <laughs> Sometimes smaller cities are a little bit more agile uh -huh. to make those, those changes happen. But I think there's an openness in law enforcement to build those relationships in a real way. We all really need each other. Right. But I wanted to speak a little bit to the training on emotional intelligence. Great. Because, you know, 1980, officers weren't getting trained on emotional intelligence. And now that, that there's a regular block within academy training in California on emotional intelligence. And so you had mentioned something earlier about uh, self-regulation. And we've been training partly because of my interest in emotional intelligence as a core concept and putting that into our command development training about looking at ourselves first, because emotional intelligence is the core foundation of de-escalation. Right. I have to know what I'm walking in the room with before yes. I contribute to a solution to the problem in front of me. Yes. And so having that self-awareness and self-regulation, but also recognizing my impact on other people as I walk into a situation. So I, I am encouraged with the the direction and the support that we're getting to move into other areas. I think mm -hmm. the idea that we could have healthier officers for a career, not mm -hmm. just for the academy. And, and, and I think of how we build healthy and resilient communities. I, I, I think law enforcement should be a part of that discussion and picture. I don't know if I said that very well, but. <laughs> I think you said it wonderfully. I do think that that arena of self-awareness period and then self-guided awareness around one's own emotional intelligence and the ability to actually emotionally read what's going on for other people is 
such a gigantically important quality in human life, period, but certainly in contexts of conflict and, and violence or potential violence, it's even more so. And yeah, it's, it's, a, it, it's fundamental. And I'm very pleased to know that that is pervasive now in what you're doing. I will say, just because we're doing it in California doesn't mean it's happening across the country. Right. So one of the biggest challenges, and now that I've retired, I'm working with the Policing Leadership Academy out of the University of Chicago and trying to make available to agencies across the country many of the things that I've learned at LAPD and trying to fill the gaps, if you will. This course is specific to commanders or captains who are at a district or community level. Yes. And that they'll oversee patrol functions, detective functions, and also the community engagement piece. We really recognize that one good leader in a division has that opportunity for probably more of a tipping point than than almost any other place. You know, certainly the supervisor of a watch can have can and does have a significant impact. But the leader who is leading that community is going to shape both the attitudes of the officers, but also the kind of engagement that that community has. And so we are rallying behind those in those critical positions to better be able to do the wide range of things that we're asking them to do, to move from incident management to strategic thinking and planning and long-term relationship building. And the premise is really that you can decrease violent crime while improving community trust, while building community trust. And in fact, that's really the only and best way to do it is in partnership. To, To make it sustainable, you have to do it together. So, you know, in the past, I think sometimes we've had momentary gains in, in, you know, squashing crime. But if you've destroyed relationships in the process, it's not sustainable. If you build relationships in the process, if we look at community alternatives, if we are engaging the community in the solutions, then we can be much more effective. And I'm so excited to see they have capstone projects in each of their cities. We have 24 cities across the country. And within their capstones, they are making a difference in in communities dramatically affected by violence. And it's, it's really given me a lot of hope about the future of policing to see these leaders step into places maybe that they haven't before or into, you know, just getting behind them evidence-based research that helps them to I- engage and, and have better outcomes. So yeah. that's exciting to see. It's very encouraging to hear that. So, Luann, as a as a Christian person in an intersection like this job, where you are grounded in a faith that does affirm the unique value and dignity of every person and the sacredness of their lives and the and the agonies and problems of being human and being social and being in a broken society, which will have no end until all things are made right. This ongoing work that you're doing, it just feels so critically important. And especially right now in the United States, along racial lines, sometimes along gender lines as well, sometimes along sexuality lines, there's lots and lots of of very complex issues and the police force encounters them daily in in all of their permutation and variation and, and so forth. So I guess I'm curious, when you 
come to this task that you've carried for these years, albeit now retired, how did your faith inform your own understanding and processing of what was going on? Well, I do think, I don't know how I would have done this job without it. Because you see some really dark days and struggles and we've lost officers to suicide and you've seen difficulties in the community or, or things just go really poorly and we can't stop working at it. So how do you keep going through the trenches? I, I often felt like one of the things that, you know, kind of the, the light that helps you the most is, is hope. Right. And I know that good people working together can make a difference. Yes. I, I know that. I've seen it over, you know, right. and we it might not make the headlines, but I've seen the difference of the impact of good people intervening when things have gone sideways. I I've seen that both from the community and from law enforcement officers. So people who put themselves in harm's way. And I I think there is great nobility in policing if we stay on that course, mm-hmm. on that path. And how mm-hmm. do we help people aspire? to being mm-hmm. the best versions of themselves within a very difficult position. One of the things I was going to mention, you know, going through Fuller and getting my degree also in cross-cultural studies and in my theology degree, I felt like that helped me a lot going into law enforcement as much as my psychology degree did, even though I was hired as a psychologist. Because what I learned about moving into other cultures, and I, I treated law enforcement the same way. Law enforcement is a culture I don't know or understand, but no culture changes if you don't respect it first. Right, right. You know, I can bring my unique perspective and view and, and, and research and background to law enforcement, but learning to understand the, the culture, the environment. And, and sometimes you talk about culture and it's such a negative way, but really you put five people in the room, they're going to create culture, right? And right. so what kind of culture we create? Can we create a culture of professionalism? Can we create a culture of the, the best, you know, the best of who we are? Of course we can. And we have been working steadily at that. I think it's also the thing that you realize without care and nurturing of that culture, it's just as susceptible to fall apart. Sure. And, you know, a negative leader or a negative person involved can can rip apart that fabric. And so I think just that piece of continuing to see hope, but I think also for myself, I feel like I have a unique set of gifts and background that allow me the privilege of working in this space. And so there's a little bit of, you know, for such a time as this, like I, I, it, I can't believe I'm getting a little emotional, but what a gift and a privilege to, to be there and kind of be in the struggle. And I think that when human beings struggle together, we overcome some of the assumptions we have about each other when right. we struggle together. I think the hardest part is the othering that happens. Yes. You know, sometimes it's the othering of law enforcement but or othering of different communities. And it really doesn't matter which side that happens. I think as a Christian, your heart is supposed to break. Yes. It's supposed to hurt over that because it's out of that heart that we go, we're not done yet. 
we have to keep working on this. It's just really not an option to me to give up. Dr. Luann Pinnell, thank you so much for being a guest on Conversing today. This has been a gift and you have stood and continue in your work even after you have finished your service at LAPD to continue to spread so much of the wisdom and experience that you've developed over the years that you've been at the LAPD. And I'm very glad that other departments and people are being influenced by the same kind of thinking that you've just shared with us today. So thank you again very, very much. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for listening. Subscribe to Conversing on your favorite podcast app to listen to new episodes as they're released. And please leave a review. Conversing is produced by Peter Laberton and distributed by Fuller Studio.